Hello, I'm Jan Marshall from Melbourne Business School. With me today is Emma Zhao, postdoctoral fellow at Carnegie Mellon Tepper School of Business. Emma completed her PhD here at Melbourne Business School in organisational behaviour. Today, Emma's going to talk to us about groups and teams and why they fail and what might prevent them from failing. Emma, to start us off, can you tell us about your research into groups and what you've been doing, what you're thinking about and why you've gone into this area? So uh, my original interest uh, in groups and teams uh, started pretty much like everyone else, looking at the best performing team. And that's often the question that we ask in organizations as well. What makes a team perform really, really well? Uh, because we typically want to capitalize on the best performing team. However, we often forget to ask the question of why teams aren't performing. Then a lot of my research questions and subsequent uh, ideas and topics came from the idea that what makes them fail and what can organizations do um, and managers and leaders do to actually prevent them from failing in the first place. So then you are looking at the problems and how you can remedy those problems. Why that's important is because often, uh, you know, not everything that's worked for you or for your team will apply to someone else and another team, right? And this often leads to a common fallacy in organizations and management in general where people often rely on past experiences or what they perceived or experienced uh, to actually judge or uh, to actually create differences in another team. And it's based on their interpretation of the problem. So it's not often based on research. It's not often based on facts. And so we have some of these issues. So Jan, today, I want to ask you a couple of questions. They're multiple choice questions. Um, and I would like you to give me some answers to them. Um, so would you be willing to help me? Far away. <laughs> Great. My first question is, uh, what is an essential condition for high performance teamwork? Your options are A, regular retreats, B, significant meaningful performance incentives, C, a shared goal, or D, complementary skill sets. Gosh, um, uh, I'm toying between a couple, but I'll go for a shared goal. You are correct, and not many people actually pick this one. While there are a lot of arguments uh, talking about the need for similar or complementary skills, um, it's actually very much more necessary uh, to actually be working towards a goal together. Uh, because if you're not working towards a goal together, you're essentially not a team or not a group, right? Uh, so question two would be, when it comes to making decisions, teams are A, superior to individuals, B, inferior to individuals, or C, better than the average of its members, but not necessarily as good as the best performer? I'm going to go for the last one. You are again correct. You're doing this really well. What uh, we often assume uh, and we often wish, wish for is for uh, teams to be superior to individuals. Uh, but a lot of the times, most teams and most groups don't necessarily go through the right processes or procedures that actually capitalizes on the best performer mm -hmm. or the expert uh, in any given field that they're actually operating in. That leads to our last question, which is when it comes to creativity, teams are A, less creative than individuals, B, more creative than individuals, or C, about equally creative. I'm going to say more creative. Okay. 
So the answer for that one, unfortunately, is A, less creative than individuals. <laughs> There's a trap in that, yeah, wasn't there? Yeah, there is a trap in that one. And two out of three ain't bad. But in general, it's because uh, groups of individuals um, have a tendency to go towards consensus, right? They actually just want to pick the one that most people agree on. There's also uh, a need uh, for people to not be perceived as crazy, inappropriate, or that responses are silly or stupid. People also tend to air up opinions that they think others will value. One way to actually avoid uh, this is to build trust and psychological safety uh, in your team. Um, but it's easy to say and often very, very hard to mm. actually achieve and do. Could you offer um, uh, an idea of what trust and psychological safety looks like when it's at its best? Yeah, so um, maybe it's best for me to talk about psychological safety first because um, trust is something that we all know, you mm -hmm. know, in order for us to trust each other, we are able to rely on each other and also there's an element of respect for each other as well. Psychological safety is very similar to trust. Um, it's the ability for the team members to feel like that their opinions uh, matter and that no one will laugh at them in a meeting. Um, so obviously that leads them to have more voice, so they're able to speak up a little bit more uh, and they're more willing to engage in uh, brainstorming and talking about uh, ideas or creative ideas that may not seem very conventional uh, but uh, and often sometimes uh, very outlandish, uh, but that actually creates more innovation in a team in that kind of environment. So Google actually did, um, uh, you know, followed some of their top performing teams uh, in their workplace and psychological safety came up as one of the top uh, aspects that uh, actually all these top performing teams had in common. Wow, that's interesting, isn't it? Because you, if I think back to meetings I've been in, it's often the dominant voice that mm -hmm. is most often heard and perhaps those with those ideas just don't get to the surface. Exactly, and we find that in an eight-person team, uh, most often... Uh, three people speak for up to about 80% of the time. Wow. So uh, when you're in big meetings, uh, only a select number of people are actually willing to speak up and talk. Um, and, you know, sometimes they can be effective, but uh, often that means other people's voices aren't being heard. Um, and it could also mean that they're over-emerging as a leader, which is another concept that we've come across, which is basically when someone emerges as a leader of the discussion or as a group, but they're ineffective. So they're actually overpowering everyone else's ideas or talking over other people and things like that. So it becomes a little bit more destructive in that sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is there an optimal size for a group then? Because you, yes. Yeah. Uh, in general, uh, you know, five to seven uh, is pretty good. Um, anything bigger than that, and you know, I've had uh, organizations come back to me going, "What do you mean by a team? What do you mean by a group?" Because I work with twenty people, um, and unfortunately, twenty people is not a group. That's a crowd. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the more people that you have in a group, the more likely that they're actually uh, free riders in the group or social loafers. So they may not be putting in uh, the right amount of effort that's worth the 20 people in the team. Um, so optimal, we're saying for a group, um, for a group to be uh, efficient and proficient at what they do. Obviously, it depends on the task um, and what they're required. But in general, we tend to think it's about five to seven. So Emma, how do we know, really know what's working in a group rather than maybe guessing or 
or making uh, a summation or based on the past, as you, you said in the outset of this interview? I think that's where uh, research is actually really, really important. Um, and working with, uh, you know, traditionally companies are hesitant to work with academics because, you know, we tend to um, want to do certain things and uh, maybe they're not, um, you know, particularly on board with that. But we've come to realize that there's a huge gap between research and practice. Um, and we want to bridge that uh, because the research that we do, at least in business schools, um, have a direct application in the workplace. Um, and we want to see that happening um, even more so than organizations, right? So um, one of the things that uh, I'm particularly passionate about is to actually bring my research to life within organizations. And one of the ways um, that we typically do it, and I'm sure most organizations know, uh, is through survey research. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we are looking into building in technology, um, the use of mobile phones, and all those sorts of stuff as well. And we certainly do utilize that now, but survey research is one of the most easiest um, and uh, the most widely used tool, uh, typically when we go into organizations to work with them. Um, and why we suggest that um, you perhaps work with researchers and consultants, not to say that consultants um, don't do um, uh, the work that we do, but it's a different type of need, right? Um, So we typically base our surveys on sound theories. We have a very rigorous methodological uh, process in the way that uh, we actually create these surveys. It does take a long time um, to actually create really valid scales. Once you have the scale itself, uh, then you have to think about adapting and, um, you know, fitting into your organization and your needs and things like that. And we can certainly do that. Um, but the average person probably isn't going to create um, the best survey that can be operationalized by uh, your organization mm-hmm. um, because sometimes they miss the point mm-hmm. uh, or the scales, the answer, the way that um, you, know, you choose to answer the questions and the scale points and things like that are just not efficient enough to actually address or target your problems. I'll just stop you there for a little yeah. moment to say, by scale, when you say scale, you sometimes you refer to the survey questions themselves, and mm-hmm. sometimes you're referring to the uh, scale by which people rate themselves. Is yes, that right. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. So the survey items themselves um, are obviously the most difficult part um, because you need to make them clear, um, and you need to make sure that they're actually asking what you want to find answers to. Um, And the way that um, the scale, uh, the other way that we were talking about is really how do we guide respondents to answer your questions in a way that you can then interpret and use them. A little more complex than it looks like. We could easily get into one of the common survey providers and knock up a survey and knock it out. But without that care, you could be getting data back that's not very meaningful and then your decision-making could potentially be worse, I imagine. Exactly. And it most often, um, you know, if you do do that, you won't get uh, results that you can actually use or utilise because it will just be all over the place and um, you won't be actually uh, able to surf. You won't, you won't actually be able to utilise them in your workplace. Um, but also beyond the survey itself, the organization, the team that's perhaps, um, you know, taking part in this process, they need to actually use the results. Um, so one of the things that we find is that typically, you know, you might run a survey every three months. 
but if the employee uh, themselves they're not seeing um, the results from these surveys or hearing about or any sort of feedback from these surveys, they become disengaged. Um, so then they perhaps uh, you know your response rate are lower, and then uh, again you can't really use some of the data that comes back through that way as well. And essentially you're wasting everyone's time because you're wasting your time in creating these surveys, then you're wasting your employees' time in filling out those surveys, and then you're wasting um, your time to interpret them, but not actually actioning them or actualizing um, the findings and utilizing the findings. So the sort of survey that a number of organizations would be familiar with is an engagement survey, for example. They're, yes. they're really quite popular at the moment and they're rolled out on a regular basis and hopefully people are feeding that data back into their organizations. But I think the sort of survey you're talking about right now is, is different and a bit more specific. Yes. Um, and, you know, we all are moving towards an age where data and data analytics is very, very important, right? We want to make decisions based on uh, facts rather than experiences or hearsay or, you know, um, just uh, general uh, common knowledge or what we think is common knowledge. Um, so why we suggest that you do surveys is that because a lot of the time decisions are really, really hard to make. Um, and when you have a specific decision that you want to make, why not trial it out with a survey? Why not ask your people what they want? Um, and it's a lot better in the process where you don't assume or make any assumptions of what your employees might need, uh, but instead you base it on uh, numbers and facts, which you can actually use to say, hey, this is what you wanted because uh, we asked you about it, right? Um, and it's a lot easier for you to make decisions that way as well. So you have something to back, um, you know, your decisions that you choose to make in your organization. So joining the dots, um, I'm thinking that employers could um, reach out to researchers in a way they may not realize at the moment they can to say, look, we're interested in being able to get some more data about our people yeah. and um, it may be in a business school there'll be somebody some academic somewhere who's doing some research around a topic where the two might be able to join up yeah um, so definitely yeah most often um, you know in any university uh, you'll be uh, you know able to find someone who would be interested in partnering with an organization, at least in business schools, in uh, partnering with an organization and doing um, some sort of research um, slash, uh, you know, uh, survey for your organization. And this isn't, you know, we don't uh, just roll out the survey. Um, there are opportunities to do workshops um, with the survey results as well. Say, for instance, uh, you know, you want uh, to conduct a session on managing conflict in the workplace or conflict with your co-workers. Um, you know, that's something that a lot of um, conflict researchers um, or even people who work in negotiations would be able to readily do. Um, we have whole courses and subjects on that. Um, and we often either, you know, teach it um, to our undergraduates, MBAs or executives. So we can certainly um, do that uh, with you mm -hmm. after, say, um, you know, running such a survey. Um, and again, you're seeing the results as well as um, doing the survey itself, itself right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, here at Melbourne Business School, just as in your business school, and this has been yours as well, mm -hmm. but similarly, I think that people may be familiar with some of the public face of these business schools and some of the open programs or other ways they might engage with the school. 
but not always familiar with the idea that they could then take that extra step and ask some questions about how they could connect to an academic and to research. Certainly. And, um, you know, most uh, researchers and academics would be happy Mm -hmm. to speak to organisations about some of the issues that they have um, and, you know, thinking about working and collaborating that way. Um, And uh, like I said, we base everything on rigorous um, methods and also uh, theory as well. But we are also very, very open to things that might be unique um, to a particular organization or questions that they want to ask uh, in particular as well. Um, And certainly that's uh, an opportunity we um, value too. And a lot of people ask me, well, you know, what do you do with that? And then we take the survey uh, results uh, for our research, uh, if we're doing that type of research in that area, and we publish in our journals. Everything is anonymous and, um, you know, we certainly make sure that no uh, employee's response will be, you know, identified. So to cycle back, um, we're, we're considering the idea of groups and what's happening in groups and why they may succeed or not. Um, and we're considering it now in terms of what research can offer back and what surveys and data can offer those groups and provide insights, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about what you've been doing and what you have found? Well, so I do uh, particularly, I'm interested in um, work looking at individuals and teams. So um, what individual factors uh, influence how people behave in teams? And the other side of my research is looking at how structure, so how group uh, power and leadership structure affect individuals and teams. Um, And um, I don't want to reveal too much, but, um, (laughs) you know, some of these are works in progress. But certainly we find that um, certain uh, power structures, uh, you know, the general uh, assumption, again, is that high power groups tend to have a lot more resources. So these are people that are, um, you know, maybe groups of executives um, or department heads or uh, groups of senior managers. Um, and typically we think that these groups um, will or are able to succeed. Um, however, what we find in our research that sometimes these groups uh, are so uh, embedded in these uh, conflicts about power and struggling for power that they don't actually perform as well as low power groups, so such as group of frontline employees and things like that. Um, and we find ways of, you know, looking at, well, how do we prevent that from happening? What are the factors? What cognitively is going on um, that uh, is preventing them from reaching their potential? Another area that we're looking at is looking at uh, uh, leadership structure, which is uh, things such as shared leadership, which is a concept I think um, a lot of organizations are familiar with. And what might be the downside of shared leadership and what uh, we can do to prevent that from happening as compared to vertical leadership. Um, so we're doing some of those um, uh, comparisons as well. So looking at that um, that aspect. So those are two of my um, you know research areas that I'm really really interested in, and I think um, can have uh, a huge impact on teams and the way we think about teams and how particular teams are structured um, and how they manage themselves. I think too what you're saying is really interesting because we're now in a time where we're seeing um, more uncertainty on the global stage um, in organisations that are being disrupted by disruptive business practice uh, that's happening around them in their particular Mm -hmm. sector. And um, we're also, as you're saying, hearing a lot about data and data analytics. But what you're offering today sounds to me like that people who may be wanting to look at their own environment or potentially change to a more effective environment 
could more immediately reach out to someone like you as an academic to work with them and do research as practice, if you like. So something that can happen live, real time, and they can get some really effective data about their own organisation. So sometimes it's wonderful to read academic papers and they can be very useful, but if you don't know then how to maybe apply that to your own environment or even know whether that is real for your environment, then this is a way to to get to some real data for yourself. Definitely. And I know, you know, often executives and senior managers, they subscribe to, you know, Harvard Business Review and all those sorts of uh, publication outlets that may have features about research and research findings. And sometimes you ask the question, well, that would be great in my organization. And one of the things that you would do is where do I find that information or how do I go about doing this? And one way is to approach um, someone in a local university such as Melbourne, if you're based in Melbourne, um, and just say, this is what I saw. Is there, um, you know, something or someone uh, in the department uh, that is knowledgeable within uh, the sphere or this area? And it's just a Google away, essentially. And I assume then that you can help people really get in and understand that data and actually, as you mentioned at the top of this discussion, help them understand how they could use it and apply it and do something differently so it's not just sort of data that sits on the shelf. Exactly. As you mentioned as well, it's tailored, right? Um, It's to this particular situation. It's to your particular organization as well. We like to see our research being operationalized and that it actually goes back into the organization uh, because that tells us also that our research is valid and our thinking and our theorizing and some of the data that we've had in the past is accurate. Right. So it's another uh, way of reflecting how our work can be valuable uh, to the organization, too. So there's a mutual benefit uh, there that we like to see happen a lot more often than (laughs) it has been. So. And do you find that people uh, receive the, the results of the data, the insights, in a way that suggests that they are happy to take up what they found? Or is it sometimes a difficult conversation because you, you touched on a lot of it can be around power and influence. So you might be revealing things to people that they have to look at and take a look at their own practice and that may not be an easy conversation. It's certainly not an easy uh, conversation. I've worked in the consulting in part in the past um, and it's, you know, it's often sometimes it's very difficult uh, to manage, especially if the results are opposite to what, um, you know, the person commissioning you to do the project is thinking, right? So you have to challenge the way that they're thinking. We always prepare the audience in such a way where, um, you know, we tell them you need to be open uh, to these research findings. And we still receive, you know, a couple of feedback that they're kind of like, well, that's against what I was thinking. But most of the time, they're actually quite open um, to these findings. And um, it's not often that, uh, you know, we have a lot of people that are so uh, strongly against uh, the results that we find. Yeah. Well, they've reached out to you for for. Uh, reasons of wanting to create greater understanding for themselves. So I suppose that actually receiving that data in some ways may be a relief 
um, finding out what might be going on in their organisations. Exactly. And we try to make it so that they're forward thinking, right? What can we do? Not um, dwelling on this, but also what can we do to improve the situation? Uh, because obviously you came to us because there's a problem um, and you want to solve that problem. So we're in this together to work through the problem. Um, and it's not about who's right or wrong. It's about what the data is saying. <laughs> yeah. So with all of that, Emma, and thinking about where we started with groups and what makes them fail and what makes them work and I just want to touch on something you said earlier around um, the power idea and what what sets that up amongst these more senior groups that maybe doesn't help them to succeed because they're worrying about power and resources? Yeah, so one of the things that we find is that uh, it's actually uh, cognitive, right? It's cognitively based. And uh, we find that it's because a lot of these group members have uh, a preoccupation with uh, what uh, their uh, team members might be thinking. So their intentions, their motivations. So it almost creates this uh, paranoid uh, cognition within these teams where no one is really trusting the intentions of others and they're looking at others' neutral behavior as harmful. Uh, or as a tax, potential attacks to their uh, power base. And we find that one easy way to actually switch that off um, is to actually focus the group's uh, attention uh, to something external to the group versus internal. Um, so once we focus them internally to things such as, you know, what do you think about your team members? Um, and, you know, how are they as uh, individuals and personality? And once you focus them on that, they're more likely to have uh, those paranoid uh, cognitions versus if you focus them on uh, things that are external, such is the environment they're in, um, the things that they're doing as a group. Uh, so that's actually a nice way to alleviate some of those tensions that we find um, that might exist in these groups. So that sounds like there might be something in that for people that if they're wanting to improve a group function today, for example, and they notice in their group that sometimes it can get a little bit tense or there's something going on. So part of team meetings could be about focusing, as you suggest, externally, perhaps on what the group's done well or other parts of the environment that they could look at to help consider, become a group again, I suppose, and think collectively and, and use the good resources that are at hand. Exactly. And you're just refocusing their attention and their focus on something that's uh, perhaps, uh, you know, that's something that they can uh, relate to or comment rather than uh, something that um, is internal to the group, which tend to focus people on some of the frictions that they already have rather than um, what they should be doing. Um, and so that's one of the ways that um, we can find that they improve um, on their performance so they can actually actualize their potential. Oh, fantastic. Emma, thank you so much for those insights into what academics can bring to the world of organisations and how that's a wonderful two-way relationship. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jan, for your time as well. If you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at mbs.edu.